Jesus. God, we do lift up these requests that we've gotten straight from the mission field this morning. First off, I pray for the hearts of the Houstons who are working there in hard circumstances. I pray that they see and delight in Jesus Christ this morning. May it be new to Him. May their faith be strong. May they uh, have a strong marriage. May they flourish as parents. And may they, uh, this Christmas, see the light of Christ in a fresh way that helps them, sustains them, and pushes them to do more and more evangelism in their city among the Kurds. Specifically, God, I pray for the outpost, the office that's strategic that they're trying to open there in the middle of the Kurdish neighborhood. May you let that succeed, Father. And I pray also for the men that uh, Kenny is gospeling, whether it's Ahmet or Hakan or any of the other people that he has shared with. It's, it's amazing for me to see the gospel go to a place where someone has no context for it. And you start to open eyes. And I pray that you would woo people to yourself by your Holy Spirit. Open their eyes, open their ears, so that they may have faith. Call out your people among the Kurdish folks there. And the women that Kendra is working with, whether it's Figi or other women she mentioned, uh, let them read the scriptures for the first time. Let them know that Islam and Christianity are completely different because there's different gods. And let them rejoice in the Jesus that they see in the New Testament, God. And specifically for Rose, the new believer that found her faith a couple of years ago and now suffering persecution uh, around the clock, being babysat by someone who will not let her read the Bible, who will uh, put the Quran in her face and make her recite it, hoping to change her back to be a Muslim and not a Christian. I pray for the strength of Rose and uh, if it's time for her to flee, make that clear to her. Let her escape safely. If she does not flee the persecution, God, may she be a light and may she rejoice in these trials. God, we pray also for our time here, sitting under your word together. May you remind us of the glory of Christ in your scriptures so that we too, God, may come to you, drink up Jesus, and go spill it out to others. I pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Luke 8. The book of Luke, chapter 8, is where we will be this morning. Luke 8, we'll begin in verse 26. Luke chapter 8, verse 26, if you need them. We do have some extra Bibles on the end of the row that you might take advantage of as you are turning to Luke 8, verse 26. Those of you who know your Bible may notice that this is not a text about the birth of Jesus, and yet we have candles and we have greenery, so what's up? Is this a Christmas sermon or not? Well, no and yes, here at TCC we like to mix our Christmas season in with the reality of how Jesus came not only for His people of Israel, but for all nations, including us in America, and including people groups all over the world that are unreached. They've never had the gospel. So when we think about the birth of Jesus, we don't just think about the cuddly manger moments, which are important. We think about those, but we also think about the work that Jesus did in His first coming and how He goes about shining light where there was previously darkness. 
So that's going to be our journey today as we have a missions emphasis over the next two weeks. Because when we think about Christ's coming, we think about our going, our spreading of the glories of Christ. I was looking this week at some pictures. I have a feed on my Twitter feed where they will send me crazy pictures. And I saw one, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I saw one this week that made me think, that is so amazing. It's just half of something. I must see the rest of it. I'm going to try to put it up here. Yes, I saw this. And this is not a freaky sci-fi thing. The first thought I saw was it was a horror movie when I was a kid. Was vultures came and attacked the people. That's not what this is. This is a real eagle talon as compared to a human hand. And I had no idea that a bird could have a talon as big as a human hand. And I saw that and I said, I must know more about this big bird, right? I just see that much and I'm fascinated. i got to see more eagle. And that's what I want to kind of do with the scriptures today. I want to see portion of the glory of God in Christ as we take a slice of Luke 8 and know that there's more to it. Part of what the more is in this testimony is Jesus is doing things in the text that later the church will do in his stead. And so as as we read this today, my hope is that you'll see a little bit of the glory of Christ and you'll want to investigate it more And in your investigation, you will be propelled to participate in global evangelism, like the Lindells were doing, like the Houstons were doing, and as we continue to do with the local church here. That's where we're going. Let's run to the text here. We'll start in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Let me read it with you. The text says this, Then they sailed, they as the disciples. Then the disciples sailed, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples land in a town in the region beside Galilee. We don't know exactly which town it is because there's three towns there with about the same name, but we do know the region that he lands in. If you have a Bible map existing in your head, your consciousness somehow of the Holy Land, you might remember that Jesus started his uh, earthly ministry, spending a lot of his time in the region of Galilee, over here in the northern part of Israel. And then there's a lake right here. And in our text, he's going across the lake into foreign territory, into a Gentile area, to an unreached people. He's going to a place where the gospel has yet to go. He's going to a place that hasn't had the scriptures. And he's going to a place that uh, people need to hear about Jesus. So long before the early church went out to unreached peoples. We see the early Christ going to an unreached group here. So it's a good glimpse of us as he goes away from the Jews where he spent most of his ministry toward the house of Israel and he steps out across the water, goes across the sea to engage this unreached people here. And look what happens when he does this in verse 27. So when Jesus stepped out of the boat onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time this man had worn no clothes, and he'd not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And I want you to note with me at least three things here that are broken about this man. Three things that are not normal. First off, we're told he has demons. Right? That's not normal. Note that. Secondly, We're told that he lives without clothes. He lives naked. 
I know my kids sometimes when they found out that I don't have internet, uh, when I was a kid, they found out that when I was a kid I didn't grow up with internet, they might say something like, well, that makes sense because you didn't have cars either or you don't have electricity. And we, not true. We, we don't want to read the text like this. So these people in the ancient world, they had clothes. This is abnormal that the guy was unclothed and he was living that way every day. He also, thirdly, lived in a graveyard. Again, don't get the picture that the ancients just did that. Ah, oh, they were ancient people. They lived. No, this was a crazy thing, a broken thing about this man. I'm mentioning these three things because we will return to them later as the story goes on. But let's keep reading verse 28 together. When this demonic man saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by that demon into the desert. In the parallel account in Matthew 8, remember the Gospels, how they work is they tell the same story sometimes from different perspectives. In Matthew 8, 28, we also read that this guy was so violent that people could no longer use the road that went by the graveyard. They would jump out and he would attack him. Mark tells us that he was also a cutter long before teenagers plagued uh, with, with doubt and grief and emotional strife were cutting themselves. This guy was also slashing himself. He was tormented. He would take pieces of glass or plaster or whatever he could find and he would slit himself physically. Night and day, says the Gospel. He was bad news. This guy had a lot going against him. The power of the demonic spirit was so strong in this guy that for his own good and for the good of everybody else, they just chained him up. Except the power was so strong of the demonic that he would snap these things like threads and easily break free. Yet, as powerful as these spirits were, we see that they acknowledge a greater power when Jesus the Christ comes on the scene. As far as we know, demons were created, they're not born, and so these guys remember their Creator when they see Him. And they see Him and they say, Ah, it's the Son of the Most High God. And kneeling before the King is all creatures will the possessed man now begins to beg. He begins to beg. Verse 31 will tellingly reveal to us that the demons feared Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the hero of the redemptive story, right? That's written by the great playwright, his father. And the demons start fearing that Jesus is actually going to act out the conclusion of the story before he gets to the climax. They're fearing that Jesus is actually going to Put away all evil before he actually gets to the cross. As Revelation promises us that one day uh, the demons will be thrown into a place of fire and be vanquished. And the demons, when they see him, they think, oh, no, he's coming early. But they realize it's not quite time for this. And Jesus realized it's not time for this yet too. And so they start a unique conversation here. This is the only place in the Gospels where we see Jesus having a conversation with demons. Let's see what he says. Verse 30. Jesus then asked the man, what's your name? And the man, not saying his own name, but saying the demon's name, says, Legion, for many demons 
had entered him. And sometimes it may be popular, maybe in your church background, you, you've heard of people naming demons. That's kind of a practice in some church circles. And they might say, oh, this is demon anger. I think you've got the demon of anger inside of you. You need to get rid of it. Or demon pride. I see that demon pride is very common in churches today to name these things after sinful conditions or emotional states. That's not what's going on here. The demon, when he shares his own name, talks about how many he has. The number, he says, I'm a legion, which means thousands. We don't know exactly how many, but Mark does tell us there were 2,000 pigs around and that he jumped into the pigs. We also know that a legion can be 6,000 Roman soldiers. So, safe to say there were thousands of demons afflicting this one man. Earlier in Luke, Mary Magdalene was said to have seven spirits. So, this is actually an escalation from where she was at. Let's see what happens in verse 32 here, if we read it. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these pigs. So Jesus gave them permission, as a king would. He gave them permission, and then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep slope, and they went into the lake there, and they drowned. When the herdsmen all saw this, saw what had happened, they fled, ran away. They told the city and in the country everything that happened. Verse 35, then people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus, and note this, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were scared. Now stop here and note the transformation that's happened with this former demoniac, right? Where he was once a demon controlled, now he is said to be in his right mind. The one who used to roll stark naked is now fully clothed, right? Instead of toiling in isolation, he is now... Uh, found community. He's out of the tombs and he's sitting at the feet of life himself in Jesus. Verse 36 tells the conclusion of the story. Verse 36, And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They didn't ask the demoniac guy to leave. They asked Jesus to get out of town. And so Jesus got in the boat And he returned back to uh, the Jews. But the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he could go with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, 39, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's a nice epilogue here to the story to see Christ himself commission the first ever indigenous missionary, not to go to Israel with him, but to stay among his own people, and he gives them one charge, declare the glories of God. And now that we've read the story, what I want to do here is hone in on just three acts of Christ transforming new creation work, and I want to see how what was happening there in the Scriptures is currently happening today as Christ, through his church, continues to transform His creation, including the nation, the people we are trying to reach. So here are, outlined, if you're into this, three sunbeams of God's glory that are shining through here. One, you see the conquering of the demonic forces. Two, the clothing of the naked. And three, continuing the community of life. Let's look at each of those in this text, and then we'll see how they're going on today. 
first in our text, like in other New Testament passages, we see that the chief role of the demonic, the demons, is to actually stop and interrupt the kingdom of God. And they do this by attacking creation. It's very consistent with what, how we saw working at the, uh, Satan working at the beginning of the story in Genesis. Remember what he does. He wreaks havoc in the creation there when he's tempting uh, Adam and Eve and a creation actually falls. Well, the demons will carry on this role of messing up God's creation, um, especially the pinnacle of creation, which is man himself. So that's what the demons are wanting to do. Um, and when we see Jesus coming in fulfillment of the first gospel from Genesis that said, Satan, representative of all the demonic forces, I'm going to bruise your head. Jesus comes in fulfillment and he is actually bruising the head of the demonic by keeping them from hurting creation and also keeping them from blinding the light of people to see the light of Jesus Christ. So he's removing the blinders, thereby taking on Satan. And we see this happening uh, in Mark 9. In Mark 9, there's a story about a little boy who's uh, attacked by a demon. He's possessed by a demon. And the boy is thrown to the ground. And he's foaming at the mouth. And he's plopped into some water. And he's pitched into the fire. All of these are telling of a demon who's trying to destroy God's creation people. And we see this also in Luke 13. Later in the story, there's a woman who's um, been sick. For uh, 18 years, 18 years of her life she spent sick because a demon is afflicting her. He's not killing her. He's just torturing God's creation. On and on in the Gospels, we see when demons are at work, they're uh, tearing apart God's creation. They're ripping at it. And when Jesus comes, uh, He stands against this. Even in our story here, when the demons are pulled out of the man, they're gone into the pigs. What happens? The demons kill the pigs, right? They drown the pigs as if to say, if I can't take this man away from you, God, I will destroy another part of your creation, which is your created swine. I'll do the best I can to undermine your authority here in creation. But hear this, a part of the gospel that is good news, as author Jared Wilson says, the devil has an expiration date. He will no, uh, not always be able to throw these demonic tantrums against his king and against our creation, the clock that governs the fairy tale that Satan is living, that he will actually overcome Christ, is ticking all the way up till midnight, till the time when he will be fully vanquished. We see this in Jesus, the man who would not be possessed, the man who would not be scared of the spooky, the man who took a risk and encountered the demonic head on and actually overcomes it. It's amazing. Later, Paul would write in Colossians 2.15 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put the demons to open shame by triumphing over them. Author David Powelson describes Christ's victory over the demonic with this quote, kind of a long quote, but I'm going to read it. Hopefully you can pay attention. Here it goes. Uh, he says this in his book, Power Encounters, about Christ. How does he defeat demons, especially in his cross? Here he says, uh, Jesus speaks of his own cross work as the definitive cosmic exorcism. This event, the cross of Christ, breaks Satan's hold over the world. We experience deliverance from the power of Satan when we turn consciously from darkness to light. The one who blinds us that we might not wallow in our own lies, 
own lust and misery is actually sentenced to everlasting darkness, while we who once lived in fear of death now rise in hope of the resurrection. Through the Holy Spirit we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. As free captives, we are learning to love our King and are unlearning the ways of our former oppressor and master. Death and sin no longer have the last say. But Jesus has come and He's conquered these demonic forces. All that was spoiled by Satan is being remade by Jesus Himself. And that's incredibly exciting. Especially as we see this uh, continuing through missions today. So here's the connection between this story and the Gospel and missions today. There's several connections. First, what, what can happen is, as we read this, as we stare at Jesus in the Bible our worship should increase. We should be saying, oh, man, that's phenomenal that he does that. How can anybody do that? I want to know more. That, that's great. He, he's magnificent. We get caught up in our worship and that will spill over to the people that we meet and it will spill over towards international missions because those people have never heard. When you love something that dearly, you'll want to, um, to spread it. As John Piper says, our worship will fuel our missions and then our missions will fuel more worship when people receive the gospel. But second, as we read through the gospel, what we learn about Jesus' conquering power here is that it is somewhat incomplete. What I mean by that is when God gave the mission of Jesus to come as a light in a manger and live his earthly life and take care of all the things that he took care of, he did limit it in scope. Jesus did not go to every tribe physically, every nation physically. What happened is when Jesus left, he gave this mission to go to every tribe, to his battalion, the church. And so now it's the church's joy to go and actually participate in the conquering of the demonic in the name of Jesus Christ. Recall, recall with me in Luke 10, verse 18 and 19, later in the story there, Jesus reminds his followers by saying this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority, talking to his followers, who would eventually be the church. I've given you the authority to tread on serpents, Satan, and scorpions, all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, says Jesus Christ, about the church's ability to conquer the demonic in the name of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis summed this up in his book, mere Christianity. Here's what he said about the situation. He said, um, the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Sabotage against Satan's scheme to destroy God's creation, including peoples by blinding them to the glory of the light of Christ. And we can take part of this in this even today. Uh, this week, I went up to Virginia where some of our church members, uh, Tim and Holly Chilton, are training to become uh, missionaries, medical missionaries in East Asia, and they're finishing up the training. I went up there. It reminds me of a story, actually, before they left. Um, if you know anything about the Chilton, they have a crazy sense of humor. And we were actually, before a special service like this, one time we were here, and he was joking with me, and he said, hey, we're having an Advent service, something like this. It would be great if I came up there and sang an, a, a solo, a cappella, Right in the middle of service. And uh, that's funny because if you know him, he can't sing. So that was a joke he was making. And I said something even funnier is I will join you in a duet. 
and we'll just sing him because I can't sing either. And he made a whole joke, ha ha, funny. And later, he was sitting down here, this is 30 minutes later, and I'm up here beginning to read the sermon text, and it's a holy moment, and I'm reading the text, and all of a sudden I glance over to make eye contact with people, and he's over there waving at me. And I thought, man, somebody's died. What's happened? Because he's a, a medical dude. And I thought, oh, man, there's a mercy. I look over there, and he's starting to pretend. He's like, I'm coming up there. I'm coming up there. <laughs> and so he makes like he's going to get up out of his seat and come up here and sing. And so somewhere we have a video, I'm sure, of me reading this text and freezing in shock because he's pranking me. He's pranking me during the sermon. Don't ever do that. God will strike you down. But that's not the story I want to tell. The story I want to tell is when I went to Virginia, the Chilterns were being trained by a famous missionary named uh, Nick Ripken. Nick Ripken wrote this book called The Insanity of God. It's a good book. Check it out if you want to hear the amazing thing that God did. But in it, he tells the story of how he was a missionary for 15 years in a really hard place in Africa where they were persecuting uh, Christians and killing them. It was so bad that they pulled him out of Africa so here's the guy, Nick, who had spent his life as a missionary, a medical relief missionary in Africa. He's had 15 years of seeing God's people die. He would save them medically, and then they would be killed by the persecution of the Muslim people there. 15 years into this, he's evacuated, and Nick is washed out. And so he asks the question, can God actually overcome evil? Can God overcome evil? Because I've been there in an evil area. I've seen evil triumph. So Nick goes on a mission to the hardest places in the world where he's actually seen Christianity thrive among trials and persecution. And he picks one place where he goes to Russia. Because Russia in the 20th century, it's well-documented oppression against Christians, lots of persecution, yet some churches are thriving. So he goes there and he meets this man named Dmitri. Dmitri was a factory worker in Russia who was a believer and he had lived through persecution and he'd seen pastors arrested and pastors killed for preaching the name of Jesus, which is illegal. And Dmitri decided, even though I'm a factory worker, since my pastor got hauled off, somebody has got to leave this church and I want my family to worship. So he starts leaving this house church and lo and behold, of course, the authorities come one day and they arrest Dmitri. They take him a thousand K from his home and they put him in prison. And when he's in prison, he was asked, how did you survive? And he said, well, I maintained some spiritual disciplines. One thing he did was every morning he would get up beside his prison cot and he would stand at attention and he would face the east. And while he did that, he would sing a worship song to Jesus every morning, the same song. And you can imagine being in a cell that was exposed to other cells, how the people, the other prisoners would mock him. They would spit on him. They would throw it him, the only things they had available, which was their own waste, and it was awful for him. But every day for 17 years, he praised his Jesus like this in the morning. Every day for 17 years, the prison guards would come in and beat him up for this. And they, as they were beating him up, they would say, we'll stop torturing you and let you go if you will just recant Christianity, sign this paper saying you're a Western spy. All will be good. And he thought about it, he was just tempted, but he held his ground. And one day, 17 years into this, he said, I'm, I'm giving up. I'll sign whatever. And it was because they had told him that his wife had been killed and they had taken his kids and they would hold his kids until he recanted. So he broke and said, I will give up. And so they brought in these papers where he would sign them and say, I'm not a Christian anymore. And what happened was right when he went to sign them, God gave him a vision of his wife being alive. They hadn't really killed her. They'd been lying to him. And he said, whoa, game's off. I'm not signing this. I'm not 
recanting Christianity, so they beat him up. And sometime later, he's found with a piece of paper that he has written Bible memory verses on, and that's illegal, and the authorities tell him that's the last straw. They drag him out of his cell, they march him down the long corridor of prison cell, and they get to the place where they open up into a courtyard, and in the courtyard is where they execute you for being a Christian. And when they open the door, something phenomenal happened. Dimitri says that all at once, 1,500 hardened criminals stand up beside their cot. In attention, they face the east and they all start singing this worship song to Jesus Christ. The prison guard lets him go. He says, who are you? Dimitri says, I am a son of the one true living God. I follow Jesus Christ. What a victory that was. They ended up letting him go. Not all pastors were let go, but he was let go. Returned to his family. Think of how the darkness was defeated in that moment by the power of Christ. Dimitri left faith, faith, faith in the wake of his persecution. The devil thought he was winning there, but Christ shone his light in the darkness. We have story after story of that throughout our mission's work these days. I also want to look at how Christ clothed the naked. Second point, he didn't just conquer the demonic, he also clothed the naked. We see this in this story. There was a demoniac who spent his life in open shame. Think about this. When I read the story before, I always thought, well, here's a demon-possessed man. So when you're demon-possessed, probably doesn't bother him that much that he's always without clothes. But then I thought, well, maybe he knew about it. Maybe he knew that he had to spend his entire life physically exposed to everyone and he could do nothing to clothe himself. Maybe he put on clothes every morning and the demon ripped him off for the entire day. You can imagine the shame there that that guy lived with. And it doesn't have to be physical shame that people deal with. By shame, I mean that the feeling you have when something is done to you or you have done something that's incredibly wrong and hurtful. Actually, uh, author, counselor Winston Smith actually compares shame to the concept of glory and says these are opposite. Shame and glory are opposite. Shame is all about feeling wronged, feeling dirty, feeling worthless. Glory is all about good, beautiful, and noble. And what happens usually when something shameful comes up against something glorious, what happens? The shameful will shirk away, right? Uh, imagine uh, maybe a homeless man on the, on the red carpet at an Oscar nomination coming up and just seeing everybody dressed to the nine. He would shirk away maybe in shame. And that's what happens emotionally when shame comes up against glory, except in the case of Jesus Christ, whose glory is so immense that it actually engulfs the man's shame. Instead of making him flee away, he accepts it and says, I will live with you in your shame and I will transform you from something I know you feel you're worthless, but I will give you my worthiness. And that's what happens in the Gospel, what happens in this story. And it's what was predicted to happen of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Psalm 72 12, a messianic psalm, we read this. For the Messiah delivers the needy when he calls. 
the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. They save the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. Part of Christ's beauty is that he welcomes the shame. Again, what does this have to do with missions? Well, we see this being uh, extended through the efforts of our church and other churches that we work with. Um, Another former Soviet country is the country of Moldova, and there's Christian work being gone on uh, that's going on there. Ben Snyder is a Christian worker who works there, and he shared this about the situation in Moldova. He said, "It's said that the number one export of Moldova is women. Of approximately 7,000 girls who work in Amsterdam in the red light district there, 6,000 of the 7,000 are either from Moldova." For the Ukraine. And what drives this trafficking industry is the extreme poverty there in Moldova. In fact, let's take a survey here. Um, who here, I know we have a lot of young families, who here has a pregnant member of their family or you've had a baby in the last year? That's me, I got an 11 month old. Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of us are in the position of young parents. Here's the situation for most of the families in Moldova you have two choices when you have a child. You either A, watch them starve, or B, you give them to an orphanage that you know will feed them and give them medicine. So a lot of the families, when they have their child, imagine this, mom and dad, they give it up to the orphanage because otherwise it would starve. And what happens is the government-run orphanages will keep the children, raise them, educate them until they get 15 years old. At age 15, they will give them $30 and they will send them out on the street uh, with no training, with no support system, and no sense of value. In other words, they're shamed by this. And what happens is when they hit the street, oftentimes a friend will tell them, hey, I know a place where you can get a job in Istanbul, which happens to be one of the major international hubs of trafficking. Come with me to Istanbul and I can find you work. And what happens is the girls will go to Istanbul and when they arrive, traffickers will rip up their passports and they will be captured, and they will be filtered throughout the rest of the world in the trafficking industry. It is phenomenally bad. But there is light here. One of the churches we partner with here in Raleigh has a relationship, and I talked to them yesterday. They told me the story of Georgetta. Georgetta is a Moldovian uh, woman who uh, has uh, children, four kids, and she found herself living in the southern part of Moldova dealing with this uh, choice. And she had a family member come to her. The family member said, you know, Georgetta, if you go to Moscow, I can promise you $1,500 a month salary working in a legitimate job. And, of course, she took it. She trusted the family member. When she got there, she was captured and put into what she called a factory for children where unspeakable things happened to her. Finally, by God's grace, she was able to escape from this with one other person. And while they were escaping, the other person she was with was shot and killed. Georgetta was injured and went into a coma while she was pregnant from the factory. She actually delivered the baby in a coma. Thankfully, she was able to make it back to her hometown in Moldova. But when she got there, guess what? Nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. She was shamed. Finally, her parents said, you can live in the tiny shed behind our house. And we can give you just a little bit of feed, but food, but there's no heat back there. So she's living with four kids in this shed 
awful conditions. And one day, she happens to go to the market and she meets the pastor's wife that we are working with in Moldova. And that pastor's wife engages her, reaches out to her with the gospel. And for seven years, she has a discipling relationship with Georgetta. And at the end of it, she is totally transformed from a person filled with shame to a person filled with the worth and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And her kids now have an education. They have a place to live. They have clothes to wear. Christ is shining in these dark areas even as we speak as the gospel goes forth from churches like ours. The more we treasure Christ's glory in these scriptures, the more we will be uh, inspired to go and give ourselves up for these type of causes. Thirdly, we see here in our text Jesus continuing the community of life. Jesus continues here the community of life. Recall how in our text today, uh, the demoniac is living at a gravesite, right? His home is among the tombs far away from the living community. And this graphically reminds us of how in the beginning, uh, the human state was in unity with God. The human state in the garden, everything was harmonious and it was broken by Adam and Eve's sin. And after that, death reigned. So much so that Paul in five, Romans 5.12 said, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. But one rocking thing about Jesus is when He shows up, He brings life with him. Here in our text, look what happens when he heals the guy. Verse 39, Jesus says, return to your home. See that? He's taking him out of the graveside, place of death, and he shoots him back to a relationship with living. Even more than that, when this guy is found by the villagers, they find him in verse 35, sitting at the feet of Jesus. The one who dined in morbid, macabre solitude, he now feasting on the bread of life Himself. Amazing how Jesus Christ can turn someone away from death to life. And we see this amazing transition even today as we do our mission work where we're working in East Asia. We've been doing for 10 years a project that translates the Bible and also evangelizes and plants churches. And 10 years ago, uh, one of the Dai people, the indigenous unreached people, uh, was saved. And this girl, Lydia, 10 years ago in 2004, went out to a village to pray for a dying person who had AIDS. The villages are um, all being ravished by AIDS there in southern China. And she went out in 2004, she prayed, she shared the gospel, and unexpectedly, God healed this person of AIDS. And so 30 people in the village in 2004 came to her and said, we want some of that. We want this. What is it? Share the gospel, and uh, from those 30 people, she began to evangelize more, and she evangelized 100 people, uh, and one of them Christ, and she also trained others. And now, 10 years later, there are 600 believers among the dive people where 10 years ago it was totally unreached. There were no believers 10 years ago. Now there are 615 different churches here. What an example of how God in Christ continues to pull people out of darkness, out of death, to a relationship of life through the work of churches in the name of Jesus Christ. 
as we wrap this up and thinking about Jesus and how he conquered the demonic and how he clothes the naked and how he continues interrupted community with God, I just wanted to share with you ways that you could personally be involved in the mission of Jesus as he conquers demons and as he mercifully clothes people through our church and other churches. So first off, if you're a member, know that your participation uh, here with the pastors and giving to the budget that we voted on today, all of these things are having an impact. Uh, You allow me to go to Virginia and visit missionaries, to talk with the Wimbles, to talk to Houston. So you're already doing something, but this is above and beyond things, opportunities for you to make a difference for the name of Christ. I want to give some of them to you now quickly. Uh, In a moment, we'll show a video uh, where a man is speaking about uh, giving to an offering called the Lottie Moon Offering. We have that at TCC. You can give, uh, call the church office. You can give to Lottie Moon. What that is, is that goes to support the salaries of people like uh, the Linvilles that we saw in the Houstons. You can give to them some of your resources, push your resources toward them like that. Also at TCC, um, more based out of our church, you can give to the Hope for All Nations Fund, which uh, we take that money and we spread it out among our missionaries. You can also give it to the Loving the City offering that we continually bring up. The Loving the City offering is for Raleigh, but we give 8% of that to international missions. So there's lots of ways that you can give through that. Additionally, there are some uh, needs from specific families in our church here. You may have seen um, that we are big on adoption here. We love adoption. Well, don't assume that just because someone's adopting that it's all paid for. Don't even assume just because the child comes back that all the bills are paid. There's a lot of unreasonable costs involved in showing mercy to orphans and bringing them into good families. You can call the church office and we can connect you directly with people who need financial help. There are even bigger needs. The lady, Lydia, that I shared in uh, East Asia, who's sharing among the die. She currently lives in a house that has a roof that constantly leaks on her and her family. It would take her a year's salary to fix it. And uh, she doesn't have that kind of money. So she has a need. Also, if you're into development, her children uh, need education. And the education costs are enormous there. Uh, Among the lost people in the AIDS villages, there's one lady that we're evangelizing who also had housing problems. Her house was falling down, literally. And so what she did was she hired a builder to come in and uh, tear it down and lay a new foundation. She scraped up the money so that she could build a new house. So she tore everything down but her kitchen. And as soon as they laid the foundation, the builders cut off. Uh, they, They ran. And so they took her money, and she's now living in a kitchen, and we're trying to share the gospel with her. These are big projects of $10,000, but sometimes God stirs people to give in that way. So there's specific ways that you can push your resources to the mission field in order to spread the gospel. Some of us don't need to push. We need to be pulled out of our comfort zone, and God is currently calling some people to be long-term career missionaries overseas, and so you should know we have a process of sending those people overseas. Some of us also need to be pulled out of our comfort zone to short-term mission work. In 2015, we are going in July to work with Lydia and the Kokers in East Asia among the Dai people. You can go with us for nine days there. In August, we will go to Guatemala to work in a children's home. We are going. Consider about going on a short-term trip. And finally, when you talk to these missionaries, 
like I do throughout the week, what I always ask them is, how can we help? How can we help? They almost always say, give me some people who will pray for me. Give me someone in the new year who will commit during their devotion time to pray daily for the Kurdish people. Pray for the die that this revival we're seeing will continue and justice will be shown, hearts will be changed, and Christ will be lifted up. So there's a lot of ways for us as a church to be involved as we want to see Jesus conquering the demonic and clothing the naked and also continuing the fellowship of life. Let's pray together. God, we do pray. Yes, we plead with you. We hear some of these stories and I want to just say, God, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet, know in Matthew you tell us that the gospel must go to all nations and then the end will come. So I pray for us as individuals and us as a fellowship here at TCC. May we grasp the reality of Christ's glory as seen here in Luke 8. He's conquering. He's healing. He's clothing. He's reconciling. May we grasp that and be changed by it this morning. And may we reorient our life to participate in His mission of reaching every tribe and tongue and nation for Your glory, God. Create in us not guilt, but zeal for the work that is ahead of your church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.